You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi. What follows is a conversation that I had with Debbie Jonas. Many of you might have heard of Debbie. She and Howard, of course, are on the board of so many important organizations. She is a philanthropist that is known uh, throughout the world. Uh, she talked with me about one of uh, the most important parts of her life in her mind, which is, of course, how she decided to stop just being a full-time mother. And, of course, she wasn't just someone who came out of nowhere. She had attended Bronx High School of Science, which, of course, is, was one of the best schools in New York. Uh, she's a graduate of Harvard University. And as you can hear on the program, it's not like she didn't think of being a lawyer when she was younger, but uh, the circumstances which led her to become a lawyer and her commitment uh, and her passion, I think it makes it very worthwhile to hear. And hopefully it'll be something that will inspire you the same way it inspired me. So here it is. Have to jump at the chance uh, to be able to be the interlocutor of this very special person, Mrs. Debbie Jonas. Hi, Debbie. And, Hello, Rabbi. <laughs> and the fact that I'm here at the Jonas home in Kisaria, uh, and I was able to get Debbie finally onto the program because I guess there's a whole bunch of stuff we could have talked about, but I, I, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about things you're passionate about. And I know that's quite a bit. Uh, let's first talk about the fact of what you're involved in. What I know you're a lawyer. Talk a little bit about uh, the legal area that you're involved in and why it means so much to you. Okay, that's a um, complicated question. So maybe 15 years ago, um, I still had little kids at home. My youngest daughter at that time was five because now she's 20, so I can do the math. Um, I never thought about being a lawyer. I never thought about legal issues. And then a friend of mine uh, was arrested. And she was um, subsequently went to trial on her case. And on the day that her trial began, I went to the Supreme Court in Bronx County to give her moral support. I'd never been in a courthouse before in my life. Uh, I just went there as a friend and um, and I became riveted by what she was experiencing, the, the voir dire choosing the jury and listening to the judge instruct the jury and watching, you know, the district attorney and watching her attorney. And she was brought to trial for what sort of offense? So she, um, she had, I believe at the time, 13 or 14 children. Wow. And she was the breadwinner in her family. They, she and her late husband, Oliver Shalom, he was a very, very special man had sort of a, an agreement that she would give birth to the children and he would do the child rearing and it worked for them. And she worked literally 24 seven, like even, even on Shabbos. And I know that that, I think in her mind, that's why this terrible thing befell her, but 
whatever, that's a whole other story. Um, at some point, her husband decided to move to Israel with the family. With because, all 13 kids. With all 13 or 14 kids at that time, he moved to Israel. And she continued working in America, working like literally not 24-7. She worked more than 24-7. She right. could pack into a day more than any other normal human being. And every month she would take off two days and go to Israel and visit her family. But other than that, she did nothing but work. And he took care of the kids. So this leaving to Israel was an agreement that they had. Yes, yes. They were, they, this was a very loving family. Everything they did, they did um, in agreement with one another. There was This was how, I mean, it, it was un, unusual, but it worked for them. Mm-hmm. Um, until it didn't, and and the, and when it didn't work, it had nothing to do with the, their family. It had to do with the outside world. So, for example, she was a physician's assistant, and she was used used to work at Einstein Hospital in the Bronx. So one time she came to, and she would she would cover a shift that went from midnight to twelve the next day, a twelve hour shift. So she came to work one day, eleven o'clock. And her supervisor called her and he said, listen, the other PA, the other physician's assistant that's supposed to cover, called out sick. Can you do both shifts? Literally 24 hours. Literally 24 hours, but in a 12-hour time frame. So she said, sure. He said, I'll pay you for both shifts. So you'll be getting paid for 24 hours, even though technically you're working 12, but you're doing twice the amount of work of a normal human being. And she agreed. And she did it, and she did it successfully many, many times, and there was never an issue. And then she got into her mind, well, I can do it all the time. So Montefiore Hospital and Einstein Hospital were sister hospitals. They had the same payroll system. They had the same HR. Everything was the same, except that they were physically distant by, I think, three miles. So she would do shifts in both hospitals. And she actually hired a driver so that she could go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And she, no one ever, ever complained. She did all the work that she was assigned to do. She, she. Mom at all? I mean, she's working 24 hours a day. Besides popping the kids out, did the kids have a sense that this is mom and mom's. So, you know, I I can answer that because in my family, um, you know, my husband works. I know him. You know, he works around the clock all the time, all the time, all the time. He's always working. Um, You know, if there's 24 hours in a day, he's not working 24. He's working 48 hours because that's how his mind works. But he's also um, really like, not because he's sitting across from me, but honest to God, really um, the most incredible father in the world. So I don't think it's a question of physical time or you could be a great parent, even if you're preoccupied. It's not, it's not physical. It's not proximal. It's like, it's where your head is. Yeah. It's where your head is at. Like, um, you know, Howard's just, he's, he's a, he might not be physically there 24 seven for all the kids, but he is there 24. So so using Howard as a, as a, as a, as a comparable situation. I don't think she was 100% like that. I think she was, I, mean, I, I honestly, whatever, I'm not trying to curry favor with him either, believe me. Uh, yeah. um, I, I think Howard is unique. She, she did the, she really, 
She did the best she could for her family. Okay. That was her. That was her right. goal. So that was her intention. So I'm intrigued how this got to be criminal because it sounds like so, she's superwoman. Right. So she's superwoman. That that's really how I think of her. I still think of her that way today. Um, she was superwoman. Yeah. She so what she could do in 24 hours, okay. most people couldn't do right. in 48 hours. So where hours. was the judicial kryptonite? So what happened was that she was um, working in these two different hospitals. You know, for the same, she was getting paid for the same 12 hour shift. And a new guy came in at Montefiore Hospital, took over the, you know, the physician's assistants, the physician's assistants. Um, he was managing them. Management. Ironically, a guy that I know, had I known at the time that, that he had taken over that job, maybe I could have saved Surprise her a him. lot of heartache or saved him, whatever didn't happen. Um, he saw that she's getting paid twice for the same 12 hours. He notified the district attorney and she was arrested um, on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Wow. Oh my God, it's many years ago, but she actually spent five days. She worked at Rikers Island as a physician, as a physician's assistant. And now she was an inmate. And it was, it was horrible. Um, so anyway, long story short, um, she was charged with grand larceny and tried to plea bargain, tried to find a different solution, and in the end, ended up going to trial. So on the first day of her trial, I went just to be a friend, just to give her a hug and say, you know, you're not alone. But I was so riveted by the procedure that I landed up watching the entire trial. It started... May right after Shavuot and it went until July and I would come home every day and tell Howard about how horrible it was and and at one point I said to to Howard that um I could do a better job than this idiot that she's bankrupt she bankrupted herself she paid every last dime that she had in the world to pay for this idiot attorney who totally didn't you know you know, a case is like a story, right? You have you have to tell the story. You can't just fight back against the evidence. You have to tell the story. There was a story here. It's a woman trying to support her family, doing the, you know, there were there were many people that came in and testified that when everybody else would come to work after another 12-hour shift, they would go to sleep. There was an on-call room and you go to sleep. And if they needed you, they would pay you. She didn't sleep. She worked, she did more work than any other person on, like she didn't steal a dime from anybody. She worked as hard as any human being could possibly work. She earned every dime. And even so, the and this judge was, got This it. was something that the lawyer was never able to articulate, he maybe even to understand idiot. himself. He was an idiot. And even the judge got it. The judge happened to have been, um, he should rest in peace, a from guy, a decent guy, a very decent guy, not a very courageous guy, but a decent guy. And he got it. And he tried to tell the jury that if she believed that she was, that she had what he called a claim of right to this extra employment, that she, that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't find her guilty of grand larceny. But anyway, at the end of the day, she was convicted. really didn't make a difference. There's no such thing in criminal court. Mm -hmm. Not really. It's complicated, but no. Okay. Um, I've seen too many movies. (laughs) Or maybe not enough. No, but it's definitely not enough. 
it's definitely that I have not seen that enough. I think everybody would say that. At, but, at the end of the day, she was convicted not of the top charge, but she was convicted of what's called a lesser included offense. The judge um, showed her some kindness because he did not sentence her to jail time. Wow. She could have for a felony, but she lost her license. Meanwhile, and, and her, during and, the course, and, and, and she's like EO. I mean, honestly, when I think of EO, I think of, I think of her, her daughter had cancer during the course of the case. Her daughter died after the case, her husband, her very beloved husband, they were such a, like really a devoted couple. He got cancer. He died. She, she lost everything. Like she never went to jail. Like jail would have been a, jail would have been a much easier sentence than what, um, anyway, but that, that was the reason that I went to law school. And when I was, uh, in my third year of law the school, I wrote like they shouldn't have, let's just put it uh, openly again, that this thing should not happen to other people, that the, that the miscarriage or whatever you want to call it of justice that occurred, yes. there should be, there should be competent people ready. There, there to should help. be, there should be nuance and there should be subtlety and there should be, you know, you So, you know, somebody robs a bank because they're greedy. That's one thing. If somebody robs a bank because they can't put dinner on, on the table and their kids are starving to death, that's a different thing. So I think in every aspect of of life, you need to have subtlety and you need to be attuned. Like she, she was not a criminal. She didn't do anything with any criminal intent. She took the best possible care of her patients that she could have. And yet she lost everything. So th- that that's really what I took from it. But anyway, it made me, um, when I came home, her, her trial started, in, I think, in May. And after I came home every day, you know, day on end, complaining, you know, about her terrible lawyer, Howard said, why don't you go to law school? And thought had never really crossed my mind before. But I'm like, hmm, I, th- I think that that sounds that sounds interesting. So in in July, I signed up to take um, an MCAT, uh, not an MCAT, an, an LSAT review course. I took the LSAT in October, and there I, I, at that time, Cardozo. I only I was only going to apply to one school. I was only going to apply to Cardozo because I needed to go to a Jewish school. I needed to go to a school where my kids' schedule would. Mm-hmm. So you could take off Shabbos and Yantav. I could take off Shabbos and Yantav. I, it wouldn't be an issue, and I would. My my life would not be um, turned upside down, and so let me ask quick, sort of like the typical type of question was Dr. Biakiva going and studying with the youngsters. Uh, yes, I was. I was a. Yes, I was. Um, I mean, I mean, yeah. look, you're, you're you're not ancient, obviously. You're not. Oh, I'm very ancient, but I. But I'm compared to these to these fresh faced fellows and, and boys and girls that were there just out of uh, you know college whatever it was so in their 20s when i when i when i graduated from law school i um i had really one of the great honors of my life um i got to give the commencement address at my law school graduation which was wow. so exciting and so you i formed a bond with your fellow students that were well there. i i said to them i said you know finally i'm i'm meeting your parents i'm finally in a room <laughs> with people that are my own age it was very um Right. Um, did I find a find a bond with my student with my other? Yeah, I mean we. I, I mean, I saw the movie The Paper Chase when I was growing oh, up. Oh yeah, I did too. That? It wasn't like that. It law wasn't like was, that. You know, I loved law school. I yeah. loved it. I loved it. I loved it. It was so. Um, 
you know, I hadn't taken a standardized test since 1974. Um, and here I was in this very, you know, intellectually rigorous environment. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I really did. Um, I had great teachers, not, you know, not all of them, but n- most of them. So was the standard, Debbie, was the standard three years to get three years? That's what took my son. So I don't know. So did because I, so, well, Cardozo at that time, I think it no longer exists, but at that time you could start in January and I was in a hurry because, you know, not, you want to get I wasn't getting any older. Right. right. So I started in January. So it was actually two and a half years instead of three. Okay. So and two and a half great. years later, you were a freshly minted uh, lawyer and but you wanted to go into what area I, I I really you know I had always thought that I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney and I had a summer internship weren't working for in my mind uh the premier um criminal defense attorney on the planet named Ben Brafman sure um right. he you know a lot of people have reputations that they don't earn he earned his reputation. Mm-hmm. He was outstanding. So he's your he's your Rebbe in a way. In a way, I mean, I, we we're not in such close touch anymore. But I have the highest respect for him. The highest, highest respect for him. Um, so on worked, so many levels. So you worked on some of his cases. Cases. So I worked and, right, and he told me that if I want to be a criminal defense attorney, I need to become a prosecutor first. You have to become a district, an assistant, an assistant district attorney before you can become a defense attorney. And I said, Ben, I, I, I don't have it in me. I don't have that gene. I cannot. Um, but you have to know how the opposition. His associates had started out as district attorneys, and I just, I didn't have it in me. I now couldn't they knew, do it. In other words, they knew how they could win. I don't even know the opponent, but they knew from the other side of the table. Right. And this way, right. they knew the keys to winning the case, to getting a, a lower a lower sentence. Or they just, they knew the mindset of, and I, I, whatever. It wasn't, I couldn't do it. I yeah. just, I couldn't do it. And that was the end of my, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, I was enamored of Clarence Darrow and I read everything that I could Can read. I and win? Of course. Are you kidding? I, I was in yeah, a school sure, play. and sure. Who'd you um, play in it? I don't remember. <laughs> you didn't play Darrow, though. No, I didn't play Darrow, but I, 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 could, have, I could play Darrow now. Um, I but, actually played Mencken, though. Oh. I played the Mencken part. Oh, that's a good part. Yeah, yeah, it sure is, right? Yeah. Um, the, anyway, so I didn't become a prosecutor. I think I did better I than Gene Kelly in the movie. I can tell you <laughs> we'll give my hero, hero growing up. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah, he was my hero. And uh, uh, but but of course he in the play, of course, he does take apart William Jennings Bryan. Like he takes apart whatever they called him. I forgot what, what pseudonym they used for him. Right. And he, he basically also, take, and he, right about when did creation begin right, and twenty-four right. hours and that's how right. long right. right. You know, as a as somebody who you know went on to become a litigator, I could imagine that moment in court. I could imagine Oh like yeah, that. like yeah. in that particular way. Yeah, I could imagine. Okay. That. So it didn't happen to me very often, but once in a while you got that so, opportunity. So did you did you go into private practice for yourself? Not no. Is so, there a shingle that says Debbie Jonas attorney law? <laughs> uh no, no, not authorized. Um when I graduated, I clerked for a federal judge, uh, Judge Dennis Kavanaugh in Newark, a great judge, a really outstanding mentor. Um, he was a Clinton appointee. He, I think he was the only federal judge that I know of who started out as a public defender, mm-hmm. which to me is like, you know, the pedigree um, par none. And we've talked about it on our other program, uh, 
just through with love about how more more judges need to have been yes uh, yes defenders as opposed to being prosecutors yes they, they exactly right? exactly we talked so, about that was part of so, so Judge Kavanaugh was, you know, started out as a public defender and I mean, he was just a great, I, I, he was great. It was a wonderful, really a wonderful experience. And then thereafter, I, um, I got what I thought was my dream job, which really was my dream job for many years. I worked for an organization called the Bronx Defenders, which is a public defender service. And Meaning, if someone cannot afford a lawyer, correct. Then so you, you're, you're, you're so if you're charged with a crime, if you're you know on trial for for a crime, and you could potentially go to jail, meaning you could lose your liberty if you're convicted of that crime, it means you're automatically entitled to a defense attorney, even if you don't have two cents to rub together. Mm-hmm. And that really was the beginning of the idea of of, a, of public defenders. Sure. So public defenders were created to defend criminal um to make sure that everybody got a fair right for people who were accused of crimes but in new york state they extended it uh and in other states as well but i'm not so well versed on which states but um in new york state they they extended it so that for example if you are accused of abusing or neglecting your children you might not go to jail for that so but you might lose your children and so the theory in new york state is it's not the theory it's the reality of life i mean if you have a choice of going to jail or losing your children like if i had to choose between the two i'd take jail any day of the week don't take my children away from me but in in new york they recognized that the possibility of of the state taking your children away from you was just as if not more serious and therefore, they created a right for parents who were accused of abusing or neglecting their children to receive public defenders. Mm-hmm. And so when I started at the Bronx Defenders, I was uh, assigned to what's called the Family Defense uh, Department, Family Defense Unit. And I represented parents who were accused of abusing or neglecting their children. And as a parent of many children who has <laughs> many occasions... Um, probably not abused, but certainly neglected my children. I may, maybe even abused from time, whatever. I, I, I got it. I got it. This and, is not. And, and you know, it's funny because not funny, but you were in a situation that most people hearing this are saying, "Oh, I don't want to defend those people." No. The the, the knee jerk reaction is uh, unfortunately, oh, they're definitely guilty, right? The knee jerk reaction is, oh, those are terrible parents. So it's not like you were out there defending the, the homeless or the person who didn't have any money or something. You were defending an unpopular type of... So, you know, you, you ask my kids even now, that it's like a family joke. No one that Ema ever represented was guilty because I really believed in and bought into not every single one, but 99.9% of the people that I represented were people whose the biggest problem that they confronted was poverty and they never intended to abuse or neglect their children. And the charges were usually brought Debbie by um, some sort of public agency. Yes. So in in New York city where I, I, I worked in New York city, I can't really speak for New York state, but in New York city, there's an agency called ACS, the uh, administration for children's services. So they were like the DA 
they were the prosecutor and I was the defense attorney. So uh, they were always my adversary, always. Yeah. And and then there was a third, you know. Could, could you say that most of your clients, the people that you represented, were from the underclass? Is that usually the case? Yes, uh-huh. yes, yes. I, I had, um, I, I think the, the biggest common denominator that my clients, if you had to pick one thing that they all had in common, basically it was poverty. Mm-hmm. and. Not, I'm I'm not talking about race or class or honestly, the, the, the thing that was most uh, across the board was extreme poverty. And you'd be amazed at how extreme poverty creates a situation where um, you you can have the best intentions in the world as a parent. But you, but you, you want to make ends meet. You want to get that bill paid. You want to somehow go out and get that third job or whatever. Or you, it is. you know, you, you, yeah, whatever. You know, you do, you do things that you would never want to. One of the things that counts as child neglect in New York is domestic violence. So, if you have, uh, you know, two parents, a you know, a man and a woman, hypothetically, let's say, and they have an argument, and the man is, you right. know, quote unquote, the aggressor. So he can be charged with child neglect, um, not married. He might not even be the father of the children. It might just be, you know, the boyfriend of the mother considered to be legally responsible for the children. It, it's, it's complicated, but no, nobody, very few people that, that I dealt with were actually legally married. It, it was kind of an irrelevant concept. Um, it's funny and now nowadays I have a different job and and it's more relevant but in those days it wasn't relevant Mm -hmm. at all and how many so you're not you're not doing that anymore you're not defending uh, no no but you did that for how many years I did that for eight years uh and I loved every minute of it I really I loved every minute of it 40 percent of the time no 20 percent of the time what was your your percentage so you know um when I when I worked at Bronx Defenders when I had that job my definition of winning was different from maybe, you know, uh, your definition of winning might, you know, if, if getting a lighter sentence, it wasn't, no, because it wasn't probation. criminal. There were no sentences. The, whole, the, the main, the only thing that the government had over my clients was their children. So we are going I to take it. your children away. Okay. So really the thing that I fought the hardest for was for my clients to get their children back. And sometimes, you know, yeah, okay, I neglected my children, give me my kids back. And that was a, that was a victory. Anytime so, that my clients got their children home, to so, me, it was a victory. And, and how often did, was, would you say 10%? You know, I, I, I think if I had thought that way, I probably would have, you know, put a bullet in my head. It was not a, <laughs> okay. we were always the Fine. underdog, always, always, always the underdog. I always defended people that everybody else thought was were were worthless and I and I and I and I that's what I loved about it I I saw the goodness I saw the humanity I saw the decency I thought I saw you know and and I tried to make judges see the same thing and I and when I was successful that was a huge thing it wasn't about it wasn't about that they didn't do what it was that they were accused of it, it was it was that there's more to a person than their worst day um you know they're a human being it sounds like, and again, uh, just what this suggests just by this conversation to me, 
a lot of people ask about the efficacy of tefillah, the efficacy of davening. Like, what does it help? Right? Are you really, if you're davening for something, especially you know, if, it, if, the, you know, if it's really not a lost cause, but let's say very difficult, and still you daven, and, and um, it changes you. Davening itself, the fact that you went through the effort, the fact that you articulated, the fact that you had the meeting with God, you're a different person if you keep on doing that and you really daven. Okay, you can ask the same question. Well, what did you change in your life? Did you suddenly become wealthy? Did the person who was ill lose that illness? No, but I'm much better for it because I, I went through that process. I'm sort of getting the same vibes from you. That by being able to become this public defender, by going through the process, by committing yourself, you feel that you have changed. You feel that you became even more galvanized, even a, a, a better human being, someone more connected to the rest of humanity. Am I overstating it? Understating yeah, well, it? I mean, I mean, yes, you're overstating it, which I appreciate. But I'll tell you something different. Um, and this is very off topic, and I apologize, but this is where my uh, where my head is these days. Um, we've had a family that came to us in New York about a year ago. Um, they lived with us for a while. Now they're living on their own in New York. They have a, a five-year-old son. Um, 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 his name is Mayan Chaim Ben Roni Berta. If anybody listening to this podcast is inclined to daven for him, please do. Um, I'm not from the great daveners. I'm not from the great believers that Hashem is listening to my my words or my thoughts or my feelings, if I believed that, my arm would have been healed a long time ago because it's on my mind as close to 24-7 as it could possibly be. You're saying is, is that we got to do what we can to try to make the world better. Yes. We can't, um, and Paul Newman said it, you know, uh, uh, and, and he's in the news a lot these days because of his biography, and he didn't think much of himself. And, but he said, look, you have, to, great after I loved him. You, you have to... You have to you have to make the world better than you when you arrived. And when you look around, do something. I mean, he, he had tragedies with the son who, who, who died, died an overdose, overdose, and he created the, the drug rehab place, um, you know, everything that he did in terms of the Newman's dressings and things like that. So um, there, was, there was at least an idea, as flawed as we all are, that we want to look around and not just be self-satisfied. I want to make try to make changes, make the world better, reach out from outside of ourselves like you did. Basically, I don't know, you know like, like, again, we all look at Rabbi Akiva, and again, I'm going to use the same metaphor as this, this great turning point. He saw the rock and he saw the water going through. The rock and the water for you was, was going to that, to that courthouse and saying, hmm, you know, if, if, <laughs> or watching the incompetence of that person. But it was the same thing, that no matter what stage you're at, you have an ability to do things. And, 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 and to actually make a difference and to marshal whatever energies and gifts God has given you and direct them in a positive way. And I think that's, I think that's the essence of your story here other than the success that you've had. Hopefully we'll get others to say, hey, I mean, I can do that as well. And not to necessarily say, well, this is who I am. I've reached my glass ceiling and I'm not, you know, I, I can't do anything. Listen, um, if I could get every person on this planet to 
wake up every morning and say, and really, really feel. Um, and, and that, I mean, honestly, that's... And others like him. And others, and others like him. But in my mind, my, in my mind, I see my aunt. Uh-huh. I, I, Maybe that's I wanna, also a lesson we can get from you as well. I want to see, you need, I, I see my you aunt. You got to make it personal. You he's have to, such you have a to sweet, a he's the cutest kid you ever saw on, on the planet. He's sweet as sugar. Um, All right. I, I, I get it. I think so. I mean, again, I haven't seen him, but no, I, I think God willing, as, you'll see I, him. I, I, being here in Eretz Yisrael uh, with you guys and in general, my, my trip here, I think you can't help but come across people's stories. Every time you go to a davening, you're going to hear somebody in, in your shalayim talk about somebody in pain, someone who needs, someone who needs something. And despite all, you know, we all hear about the chicanery, but I think we have to focus in on, 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 on things that are true as well and, and not be so cynical. That's, that's one thing. You're not a cynical person. No, I'm not a cynical it. person, yeah. but, you know, and I don't want to, yeah. I'm yeah. basically an apicorus in my heart. Right. But uh, I, and I, 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 we should have, I'd be more apicorus in like yeah, you and well, Claudia. Well, you know, well, Look, uh, we could go on. I think it's a lot of hours over here, especially with the, <laughs> with the family around there. I want to thanks, 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 Debbie. Thanks for giving us this chance to, to yeah, lose a little bit. Yes, yeah, Okay, we'll catch you later, my friends. Take care, everybody. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 